0: great to be back. By the way, um, as you know, I'm more teacher than a preacher, so uh, ushers, you want to bring this stuff. I know a lot of you slid in. Some of you have no interest in uh, filling in the blanks, but I wanted to show off. Dana, as you know, Dana impacts my life a lot. Uh, this morning's gigantic font and less than 20 uh, blanks is all thanks to Dana. Uh, as you know, I would have had two and a half pages and a hundred blanks to fill in, so uh, she's just started reviewing all of my work, and it, uh, it makes me better. Ephesians chapter two. turn there with me. if you're new to the scripture, it's about ninety percent of the way through the volume of the text. Ephesians chapter two uh, and uh, it'll also be uh, on the on the screen. Let's look. you know we're in a uh, Josiah Pastor Josiah started us off uh, with a great message last week. Let's look at Ephesians two and uh, as we've said before this um, this chapter could be an entire series of its own. And what's annoying this morning is I'm going to preach on one word from this chapter. But let's look at just some snapshots. Look at verse 4, Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love in which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him at the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So as you know, all through Galatians, we've been hearing this incredible articulation of the gospel. And he picks right back up on it in this uh, incredible book of Ephesians. And, And now he says some of the most monumental words in all of Scripture This is a thought that no human religious thinker, other than those who actually understood the Old Testament through the Holy Spirit's enlightening, no one else on the planet had ever heard of anything like this. You probably know the words, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast." So there it is, the gospel. And near the end of the chapter, Paul makes a profound theological statement that founds the basis for what he's been saying. You see, he reminds us that the incredible gospel only exists because it's built on the solid rock. Look at verse 19. So when you are no longer strangers, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, in the midst of this complex and packed passage, it'd be easy to blow right by this statement. But the fact is, this metaphor of Christ being the cornerstone, you may not know this. I actually didn't until I looked it up but it's actually used in Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, Ephesians, and 1 Peter. Christ, the cornerstone. The concept that Jesus is the rock, the foundation, is even much broader than that. This pervades Scripture. In fact, it's the basis for, here's your first blanks, get your pen and your paper out, a profound historic Christian doctrine in history and in life. Jesus is the cornerstone of everything that matters. Let's take a step back for a moment. This concept that Christ is the cornerstone is well known in Christian thinking, right? We sing songs about it. We even name churches after it, right? You've seen the bumper stickers around the valley. Um, but if this is such an important idea, if Paul thinks it's the very basis for the gospel, it's remarkable that, I'll speak for myself, that I have such, uh, I don't have a clue about what it really means, So this morning, we're going to unpack this concept, one word from Galatians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to begin with what uh, many theologians consider a parallel passage from the book of Revelation. Now, I want to begin with a little bit of background. Now, for those of you who know eschatology, uh, uh, full disclosure at the beginning, I'm going to uh, just use a grid of the... Pre millennial view. It's one view that's hung around the church a long time. There are others. And I'm not even going to get into the rapture, right? The whole left behind thing is, you can play with that if you want to. But uh, I, in fact, I see there's a Greek scholar here this morning, so I would never touch on that issue. Um, but uh, hey, Dr. Smith, great to have you. Um, but, uh, but just so you know, in that view, um, the last seven years of history are very special years in history. They begin with a peace treaty between who will become the Antichrist. Again, this is a specific interpretation that's hung around the church a long time, it's not the only one. Um, But um, three and a half years in, something horrible happens. And at that point you get what's called the abomination of desolation and the Antichrist sets himself up in in the temple in Jerusalem as God. And the whole world has to worship him and if you don't worship him and carry the mark, then you are slaughtered, you're beheaded. And then at the end of that seven years comes the battle of Armageddon where Christ returns. And um, in the middle, if you use the classic premillennial grid, look with me at Revelation chapter 12. So Revelation's easy to find. It's at the opposite end of Genesis. It's the last book in the Bible. And look with me at chapter 12. And if the premillennial theologians are correct, then this happens at the middle of the seven years of tribulation. And um, there's an amazing thing that happens in heaven. Look at this. Verse 7, And there was war in heaven. Michael, so one of the three great archangels, right? There was Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. Lucifer fell. This is Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. We'll see who the dragon is in just a second. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, so there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Notice who it is. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now let me uh, give you a quick uh, timeline here. Next slide. If I got the, in fact, if I got this right. Uh, Okay, so... This is the last seven years, some theologians think, think the, the 70th group of seven years that Daniel prophesies about, but the tribulation begins at the midpoint, literally all hell breaks loose on the world, because what we just read happens. And then what Jesus in Matthew 24 calls the great tribulation, like has never occurred on the earth before, is that last three and a half years, and then Jesus at the end comes, returns, wins the battle of Armageddon, um, And so um, the devil is thrown out out of heaven at this point. Again, if this interpretation is true, but the point is going to be really important regardless of what you think about the timing. Look what happens as Satan empowers the beast or the Antichrist. Chapter 13, next chapter, just look with me at the middle of verse 3. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, okay, this evil Antichrist. And they worship the dragon, remember that's Satan, because he gave authority to the beast, the Antichrist. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And look at verse 7. And it was given to him, this beast, this evil man, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So this is the setup. For the final confrontation between good and evil in the last days. Satan empowers the most evil man in history to do his bidding, and for three and a half years, it looks like evil is going to win. The nations worship Satan and this man as Christ as God. Um, but just as it looks like evil is going to triumph, the Christ who came as a meek little baby came as a lamb, now the lion. Returns and puts everything right. But the book of Revelation doesn't wait till the final chapters. And here's where I want us to focus this morning. Turn back with me to the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Um, here in the first chapter, it opens making sure that everyone knows that this incredible book is about the amazing Christ. And notice it speaks at the, in the first chapter of what will happen in chapter 19. Behold, he is coming, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn with him, even so, amen. Now listen to Jesus speaking, giving these incredible statements about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, of course, meaning the beginning and the end, the Almighty, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Notice, this is another way, as the theologians have connected, this is another way of saying cornerstone, the Alpha and the Omega, the El Shaddai, I am Almighty God, I, I'm the ruler, I'm the king, all of these things that Jesus have said about himself. Uh, and the Apostle John was so blown away by what he saw with the exalted Christ, an amazing thing happens. Now, remember, the Apostle John was very special to Jesus. The Apostle John refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. John is the one who Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, looks at this young man, John, and says, would you take care of my mother, Mary? That's how special the relationship was between John and Jesus. But when John sees the now exalted Christ, look at his response. Verse 17, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Folks, Jesus is not a meek little baby anymore. John saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and he was paralyzed and couldn't breathe. This is amazing. This is the Jesus now who sits at the right hand of the Father. Look at this. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man, and he laid his right hand upon me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And here's the key phrase for this morning. I hold the keys of death and of Hades. I don't know if you've ever seen those before, but this is a remarkable way that John said, I'm the cornerstone. Let me give you the two key concepts that set this up. Number one, here's your your blank. Key concept number one. Christ holds the keys of death and of Hades. That'll be the two main points this morning during this teaching. And here's key concept number two. The reason Jesus is the cornerstone is because he holds the keys. Now, this right now seems awfully theological. Some of you are already lost in Revelation. You saw a seven-year thing up there, and you went spastic. Okay, so now focus with me on these two incredible things. I call it the truths about the keys, the two great keys that Jesus holds. Key truth number one, here it is. Here's your blank. Write it in. Satan does not hold the key of Hades. Now, this this is incredible. This has two implications. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but here's implication number one. You ready for this? Satan isn't even in charge of hell. Isn't that amazing? Perhaps you've never understood how important this is. Typically, right, we think of Christ has the key to heaven and runs the place, but Satan certainly has the key to hell, right? If he has charge of anything, He must be in charge of hell, (laughs) but this isn't true. He doesn't even hold the key to Hades. Now, look clearly how the Revelation states this in a passage that describes Jesus' return. So now almost the very end of the Bible, chapter 19 of Revelation. Okay, just one verse. Look at this. This is the return of Right? Okay, so in verse 16, it has said, Here he is, and on him, on him, his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you have a good translation, that is the largest font where it says, Whoa! He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. That's written on him. The reason why the font is the largest of any writing in your Bible, if it's properly translated, is because the scribes have continued through the ages to use, like, gigantic letters. To say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is our pathetic English version of the real Bible. Okay? So notice, and this is what happens at the return. Here's the beast, right? The Antichrist. Look at this, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies assembled to to make war against him, Jesus. Not smart. Right? Who sat upon the white horse and came against his army and... Notice, and the beast was seized with him, and the false prophet and perform that performs signs in his presence. So here is the Antichrist, and the fake Holy Spirit, if you will. Right? You got the got the fa- the false Trinity. Right? You got Satan pretending to be God the Father. You got Antichrist pretending to be God the Son, and you got the false prophet who who gives praise, who gives worship to the second person of the ugly Trinity. Right? One of the reasons best, uh, in my opinion, one of the reasons best to believe in the Trinity is because Satan tries to fake it, tries to be his own triune God. So notice, here we have the Antichrist, right? And what, look what happens to them, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image, and look what happens to them. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with Brimstone. You ready for this? Here's the final word. Here's your blanks. The final word on the Antichrist, he is thrown down and defeated forever. All the power of all of human history, all of the oppression, all of the wickedness, all of that which the strong lording it over the weak, everything that was anti-Christ, against Christ, instead of Christ, everything in this man and his buddy is forever thrown down. This amazing victory of Christ. And now look at verse uh, 10 in chapter 20. Here's what happens to the big shot, Lucifer, the devil himself. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. Remember, they already got tossed in. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Ever. Here it is. Here's your blank. The final word on Satan. He's thrown down and defeated forever. You see, tucked in these verses is one of the most astounding claims ever made. The enemy is so inferior to God, folks, that he's not even in charge of his own dominion. It's wrong to think that the battle between good and evil is a war between similar powers. It is not. Star Wars is wrong, folks. There's not a good side and a bad side, forever locked in an eternal war. There is a day coming and good will and righteousness will win and all evil will be set right. We have no idea the mystery of that miracle, but that's what's gonna happen when Jesus Christ returns. So this is just an amazing statement. See, Satan is defeated. The end is near. We've seen the end and there isn't anything he can do about it. We've gotten to read the last chapter on him. So here's the key. The enemy doesn't even hold the key to his own house. That's how far superior Jesus is to the enemy. Implication number two, right? The second implication of the truth that Satan doesn't have the key to Hades. Never forget, you ready? Here's your blanks. Never forget, the accuser is a liar. Now, some of you here this morning you struggle with a past that makes you think that you're just too bad for God to accept. If you believe this, then you're listening to the lie of the enemy. It's not the whole text, and it's not the whole point, but one of the great texts is, near the ends of Roman, end of Romans chapter five is, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. There is nothing in your past. Listen to me, church. Some of you are dogged by something in your past. And there's just no way God, no no way anybody else would do that because you know. Nobody else knows maybe. And it just dogs you. And you think, you know, God can forgive a lot of things, but not that. So the enemy lies to you that it's his call whether you will be eternally lost or not. He he wants us to believe that he holds the key. But here's the greatest news in all of history, folks. Jesus holds the key, not the enemy. And he has a plan to save everyone. No matter what you've done, no matter where you are, the only one who will be lost is the person who rejects the gift of salvation, which God offers freely to all, and who chooses to go their own way rather than to repent and to follow Christ. Not even the second most powerful entity in all the universe can control any of your destiny. Because Jesus holds the key. Now let me stop for a moment. I want to talk to two kinds of people for just a second. There may be here some here who have never given your life to Christ. And there may be others here who've been pursuing salvation for a long time and it's Really common for both of these kind of people to have accusatory thoughts, this kind of self-loathing of if you're really, really honest and you really pay attention to what you've done and who you are. And, And maybe you've been pursued by a memory of these past sins and the kind of life that you've lived, maybe the secret hidden sins. And so every time you really get ready to give your life to Christ, you hear a word from the enemy. And here's what it says. I doubt any of you have heard this audibly, but this is certainly how it feels. The enemy says, I hold the key of Hades. I decide who's lost. Only good people can escape my prison and you aren't nearly good enough for God to save you. I hold the key. You belong to me. I don't doubt that there are in a congregation of this size maybe dozens who have had or have that kind of thought um, here's the word of the Lord. The enemy is a liar. Jesus holds the key. Isn't that great news? No matter what you've done, Jesus, the one who died for you, who loves you with an eternal love, Jesus holds the key. So I'm going to do this. This is the advantage of not being ordained and not being a real preacher. I'm going to have the altar call without an altar call in the middle of the service. I know it can't work this way, but uh, trust me, I'm a doctor. Um, I I want you to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. If you've never given your heart to Christ, or if you have in the past but you've drifted from him, then listen. Everybody close your eyes. Bow your heads. Right now, you know you need to give your life to him. You know that today is the day of salvation, and it's time to stop running from the Lord. Others of you have been trying to follow him, but it just seems you can't get rid of your past. You've asked him to forgive you, but it just haunts you. If you're in either of those situations, every eye closed, every head bowed, if you're in either of those situations, just quickly slip up your hand and make eye contact with me. Nobody else. Yes, thank you. No, nobody else looking around. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yes, in the back. Hands all over. Yes. I want to pray for you because everyone who is in that setting, I have great news for you. Jesus has paid the price to separate those sins as far as the east is from the west from you. So let me just pray for you. Oh God, for all three kinds of people, never have known Christ yet, have known him but have kind of drifted away, or trying to follow you, maybe really, really hard and dogged by your past. God, I pray that right now those shackles will be removed because Jesus holds the key. The enemy doesn't that the liar will be exposed in their life and now by faith they will repent of their sins and they will trust you because you cleanse when we ask. May your Holy Spirit do the work right now, Lord. Amen. By the way, if you raise your hand and make sure you tell somebody, a, a mature believer in Christ, a pastor, someone today is best if you can. So let me reset Key truth number one is that Satan does not hold the keys of Hades. And now here's key truth number two. Here you go. I bet you're glad there's only two points today. Are you getting like near the end of your blanks? Don't get excited. It's not 11 o'clock yet. So um, key truth number two. Yeah, I faked you out this time, right? You usually know when it's going to end. You have no clue because this is like the last blanks. Um, key truth number two, Satan does not hold the key of death. Now, we could go in a lot of directions to apply this truth, but here's what I want to deal with this morning. I'm struck by how many believers live with anxiety and worry and fear. Fear of harm, fear of evil, fear of calamity, fear of the future, fear for your children or grandchildren, fear of failure, fear of disaster, and many of us, fear of death, whatever, cancer. The list just goes on and on. And when this happens, it means that we've forgotten That when everyone else is going nuts over flesh eating bacteria and terrorist threats and the swine flu, when everybody else is just going over the edge about that, um, those who are in Christ should be living in confidence that our King is in control. Listen, folks, the enemy doesn't hold the key to when we stop breathing, it's not his call. Jesus knows how many heartbeats we're going to have, and he knew before we were even conceived. Jesus holds that key, not the enemy, not an evil world, not the bad guys. Jesus holds the key. Now, don't misunderstand me. In my 25 years of practicing in a, a, a really busy trauma center have taught me that the swine flu and about 10 million other things can, in fact, take you out, and me too, um, in fact, probably, I've probably said this before, but you may not even make it home from church today, okay? How's that for a fun fact? Um, I have the gift of discouragement. It's my calling. Um, so, so think about this. Uh, I, I may have given you this one before, too. Do you know this year, 400,000 Americans are going to drop dead from sudden cardiac death? This year. Um, it's a joy. Aren't you glad you came to church? Um, and, and here's the thing that's really astonishing. Did you know that half of them, half of them, the very first symptom of heart disease they will ever have in their life is they will <laughs> drop dead. Sorry, I should have done that farther away from the, uh, I hope you can hear the rest of the message. Um, so uh, so this, is a, this is a key. Don't sit there saying, oh, that couldn't happen to me. I feel fine. Guess what? If you feel fine, you're at risk for dropping dead right now, because half of them are going to. Um, by the way, Josiah, if this happens to me, just take my notes and finish the message, okay? Um, now, some of you are going to uh, are young here, and you're thinking, "Oh, he's he's talking to the old people." All right, um, let me talk to the smug young bucks that think you have 60 more years. Um, did you come to church in a motor vehicle, and are you planning on going home in a motor vehicle? 30,000 Americans will die this year, most of them young, and not one of them will think it was going to be them. Perhaps you rode a bicycle. You're at risk. Um, I'm not even going to say anything to the motorcyclists. You're already toast. Um, But maybe, maybe you took the safe route and walked to church. Well, I'm glad to report that the CDC said last year almost 5,000 people died getting run over by cars while they were walking. So the bottom line is, you're all in big trouble, okay? So, <clears throat> the fact that Jesus holds the key of death doesn't mean that we can't die, right? That's not the point. The point is we, not that we're, you become a Christian and you no longer have risks. Folks, here's the point. Because of Christ holding the key, death no longer has any power over us. That's how we're supposed to live. You know what? Did you know that our death isn't a problem for God? In fact, he considers it an upgrade, right? That's, that's Paul's point of, oh my goodness, in this victory, I gotta stay around so I can write letters to you schmucks in, in Corinth, but I'd rather be home with Jesus. Jesus, take me home. He'd rather die. So this perspective is really should be changing. And this is why, think about this. So many of us live in fear because there's so many risks in life. Should I get in the airplane? Should I go on that? Should I drive this? Should I rock climb? Uh, My answer was yes. Um, But these kind of things that we fear about. So um, why do we live in fear? As if the arm of the Lord is weak. That's not the Bible. That's not the Bible's God, folks. You know the one true God is so immense. Do you know how he, he created the universe? With a word. And let me give you a little bit of information about that. That created, that word created a hundred million galaxies. And when he did it, he didn't strain, he didn't get winded, he didn't break a sweat. He spoke a word. And whatever he said created that. Have you ever looked at the detail of when God created the stars in Genesis chapter 1? Do you know what the text actually says? You ready? You ready for all these stars? You know what the text says? He created the stars also. That's what the text says. Oh, let's have a few stars. And A 100 billion trillion stars. He created them also. Let's have some. So let me show you the number. Um, yeah, there really are 21 zeros there. That really is a billion trillion Stars and counting, by the way. Now let me try to put this into perspective, okay? This number, because it boggles all of our minds. If every person on the planet, seven billion people, if every one of us on the planet counted a star, one star, every second, all seven billion of us, one star a second, it would take us almost 5,000 years to count this many stars. Okay, I, I love this. The word says that our God marks off the heavens with a span, It's an old English term of an old biblical term. And you know what a span means? It means you put your arms out like this, right? And it's fingertip to fingertip, right? So the only people who care in our day are basketball players. But other than that, right, that's a span. And you ready what the astrophysicists tell us right now? You know how big that span is? The universe is 13 billion light years across. Let me show you the number in miles. Yeah, Six billion trillion miles and he marks off the heavens with a span. Why do I worry? Why am I afraid? That God holds the key. Nobody else. Oh my, forgive me, Lord. You see, the, the scale of interstellar space is so vast that it boggles the mind, right? These distances... We can't even comprehend. So another way that God announces his glory to the creation is through the natural beauty of the earth, right? The Psalms say all beauty speaks of his greatness. Let me just show you a few snapshots. Now, the agnostic and the atheist tell us, you know what they call this in a lot of the textbooks? A miracle of randomness, which I thought was an oxymoron, but apparently they don't. Yeah, this all came from random purposeless forces. Canadian Rockies. Alaska. Purposeless forces. Who, where's this? Yeah, it's closed, isn't it? Uh, but look at that. Niagara. Ah. Bridaldale Falls, Half Dome, El Cap. Anybody, anybody here gone through the Wawona Tunnel and seen this? Random purposeless forces, right? And uh, here 's home, Arizona. Now, I, I, I want you to think about this. <laughs> our amazing planet announces the magnificent creativity and power of our God, and remember, this is the fallen world. Imagine what it was like before we joined the rebellion, and sin tainted it. Imagine before there was any political arguments to have about the environment when it was more perfect than any of these pictures. That's who our God is as creator. So, we're surrounded by amazing evidence that constantly announces the greatness of God. We see the awesome beauty that he's created, and when we think about this, it seems that we should never doubt, right? When he so clearly has such incredible power, and when we have evidence of his loving tenderness and creative brilliance it's scripted throughout all of nature, it makes me wonder why I could ever worry or be anxious. This brings up one of the great contradictions in my life, right? Sometimes there's a huge gap between what I say I believe about the awesomeness of God in theory, what I sing when I come to church, and the way I deal with problems and challenges and difficulties in my life. It's amazing how small I can make my God when I have problems. Forgive me, Lord. See, on the one hand, I really do believe that God has unlimited power and unlimited knowledge and unlimited wisdom, and I I don't believe that even Satan is a rival to God. God has no competitor. Lucifer is no rival. We've already seen him fall. He was created by God just like you and me. Lucifer is a creature, and everything he does, it will ultimately be constrained by God's authority. Not throughout all of history, but by the end of history, everything's set right. And yet... See, God has allowed free will in his creation. He allowed Lucifer and many other angels to rebel against him, and they became the world of the demonic. And for reasons that will never be fully understood, certainly by us, until we're with Christ in heaven someday, God allowed evil to exist. He allowed Satan's influence to bring ruination and suffering and oppression and evil into the world, and for some reason, he allowed humanity, he allowed us to join the rebellion. <laughs> The Gospel of John says the familiar words, right? The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. And you know what? He's really good at it. But here's the great news this morning, folks. The enemy doesn't hold the key of Hades, and he doesn't hold the key of death. And this is what that means. The evil one doesn't have control of our future because our future is in the hands of Almighty God. If we belong to him, he is the one who has complete control. And today, God's power isn't diminished. His authority isn't weakened. His strength isn't faded. His majesty has not been compromised. There is a time coming when that will be completely apparent. Now we only look at it through eyes of faith. Now, no matter what you face today, God hasn't changed. He's never shaken. He, he never says, He never says, Oh, oh No. I can't believe that happened. I I, I wish that county would get a helmet law. I keep losing people from these accidental head injuries. I mean, do we really think that's God on the throne? Oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. No. No matter what we face today, if you belong to the mighty one, then cast aside fear and anxiety and worry. Rest in his powerful sovereign arms. His ways cannot be defeated. He cannot fail. Um, this is just a, an amazing, amazing concept to me. So think about this. Do not forget this. He holds the keys. Pastor Josiah, come on up. Um, now, now, perhaps some of you have been confused about all of the complicated interpretations of Revelation. I gave one today, right? And, and, and made the disclaimer even as I gave it. And maybe you don't have a clue whether you're pre-millennial or post-millennial or millennial. let alone whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, Post-trib and kind of the Johnny Come Lately, you know, uh, pre wrath right? I don't know if you even know what those words mean. <laughs> and perhaps sometime we will do a, a series on on the end times. But for this morning, let me boil the Book of Revelation down to its simplest meaning. The, in the Revelation, we get to see the conclusion. In the Revelation, we get to see the punchline, and here it is, folks: Jesus wins. That. Is the word of the Lord. Now, listen to the Apostle Paul's description of Christ's coming in glory. Listen to these great words. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. There is a day coming, folks. Every power will bow. Every person will bow. Every entity will bow. Every government will collapse. They will all bow. And this is what will happen of those who are in heaven and on the earth and even under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, as we close, I want us to look at a brief snapshot of the victory that's coming when the Father says to the Son, Jesus, it's time. You see, Jesus is at the right hand, having sat down now, have completed the work of the salvation, and he's waiting for the Father, a day which he said the Father has fixed. And someday he's going to say this to his son. He's going to say, Jesus, it's time. It's time for you to banish the enemy. It's time to set all things right. It's time for you to take out the beast, son. It's time. It's time. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says will happen to the enemy and his armies who come against Christ on that day. Listen to these amazing words. And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I think they'll be up here as well, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel, and the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things on the earth and everyone on the face of the earth will shake at my presence." The mountains also will be thrown down and the steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. And I will call upon us for a sword against him on all my mountains, him the Antichrist. And look what's going to happen. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are, are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. I love the way the Apostle Paul emphasizes how little effort this event will require on God's part. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Then the lawless one, Satan, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. I love that picture. Look at this. Can you imagine the second most powerful being in all the universe, and the destruction will require nothing more than a puff of air from Jesus. It will be, and he'll be gone forever. Just like he spoke a hundred billion trillion stars into existence with a word. Now the next time you hear the word cornerstone or the next time you read it in the Bible or see it on a bumper sticker, that's the picture I want us to have of the cornerstone. You see, our king is coming in power and great glory, and folks, no one can stop him. Now listen, none of us know when that day will be, but we do know this for sure, that day is coming, and Christ will descend, and his majesty will no longer be hidden, and his power will no longer be cloaked, and his greatness will be fully revealed, and every eye will behold Jesus Christ, the Lord. So, this morning, the eternal word of God has declared that the enemy will be cast down. Do you realize Satan's dominion is on the verge of collapse. So, today, I want us to listen to the words one more time. Never forget, Jesus holds the keys. Let's stand together. It's time for us to respond, church. It's time for us to join together in proclaiming God's victory. Together we declare that Jesus has conquered the evil one. Together we declare the might and glory and majesty and awesome power of God. Together we declare that the enemy has been defeated. Sing.